Hi, everybody, and welcome to Martin Van Dyke Undercovers, produced in partnership with the Ann Arbor District Library. Steve Turner's new book is called Beatles 66, The Revolutionary Year, and it's a riveting look at the transformative year and the lives and careers of the legendary group whose groundbreaking legacy would forever change music and popular culture. They started off as hysteria-inducing pop stars playing to audiences of screaming teenage fans and ended up as musical sages considered responsible for ushering in a new era. Music journalist and Beatles expert Steve Turner slows down the action to investigate in detail the changes that took place in the Beatles' lives and work during 1966. He looks at the historical events that had an impact on the group, the music they made that in turn profoundly affected the culture around them, and the vision that allowed four young men from Liverpool to transform popular music and serve as pioneers for artists from Coldplay to David Bowie, Jay-Z to U2. When I interviewed author Steve Turner, I began by asking him why he focused on this one year in the Beatles' career, 1966. Because I thought it was a, um, you know, it was a crucial year in between the kind of Beatles of Beatlemania, the sort of Beatles you get featured in Ron Howard's uh, documentary, Eight Days a Week, uh, you know, with the head shaking and the, the girl screaming, and, uh, you know, the more serious um, studio-based musicians, the people that, um, uh, you know, the youth generation and the students of that era were, were kind of looking up to, listening to what they had to say and uh, reflecting the culture and cultural changes and so you 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 kind of had a bit of both in 1966 i mean it was their final tour of the u.s they did their final concert in san francisco um and they you know by the end of the year they, they'd started recording sergeant pepper so you really had you know uh, we can work it out being the single that was out at the beginning of my book because i started the book with december 65 to give it some context and then um, recording strawberry fields at the end of 66 Mm, just incredible that the, 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 they were moving at just this speed of light seemingly in their career and, and as far as their creativity. Uh, talk about the transition from Rubber Soul to uh, the sessions for Revolver. What was going on in uh, the personal lives of John, Paul, George and Ringo that was uh, uh, coming out in the music on Revolver, the transition from Rubber Soul to Revolver? Well, um they, 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 were, they, they kept talking about doing another film to follow up from Help, and, and it just wasn't coming together. And, and I think they blocked out time to film, which meant that they weren't touring for the, um, the first few months of um, 1966, whereas previously they'd really been on the road more or less all the time when they weren't in the studio. And in that time they had to themselves, I mean, Paul started to get involved in, in kind of art galleries and the kind of alternative culture that was bubbling in, in, in 1966 in London. And uh, John was spending a lot more time at home. He wasn't as involved in the kind of art scene. George was getting interested in Indian music. Um, he, he went to see Ravi Shankar in concert. So they, they were... Um, they were, they were pursuing their own interests, but not with the idea that they would split away from the Beatles, but that if they pursued their own interests, it would kind of feed back and, and ultimately strengthen the Beatles. 
But, but for so long, they'd been... Uh, Mick Jagger used to joke and say they were the four-headed monster. I mean, there was this idea that they they kind of wore the same clothes, had the same hairstyle, and, and they, they were like four expressions of one personality. Um, <laughs> But, you know, that was obviously a bit limiting for them. And I think this was their opportunity to explore their individual tastes and interests. And how about their personal lives? I mean, just in terms of uh, the girlfriends, wives that they were involved with. And, and of course, inevitably, because we're talking about the 1960s, the, the use of drugs, marijuana, and, and yeah. the use of LSD, which, which really came out in some of the ideas for the album and in some of the lyrics. Yeah, well, um, I mean, George uh, got married to, to Patty early, early in, in, in January 1966. Uh, Ringo was already married and, and had, had a child, I think, the year before, Zach. Uh, John was not so happily married to Cynthia, had moved out of London to the, what they called the stockbroker belt, which was, um, you know, the more affluent housing just, just outside of London, um, where, where George was also. And, and Paul was with... Jane Asher, the actress, but um, she was quite independent. She was working a lot in the theatre, so she wasn't around a lot, and I think that didn't fit too well with Paul. He kind of wanted somebody that was, was on hand and there when he wanted her, but she wasn't that, that sort of girl. So that, that was a kind of domestic situation. They, um, they'd all experienced LSD the year before, 65. Paul in December, although he's always thought that it was in 66 and after Revolver, but I, I found I was able to date it to December in, in 65, so that means all of the writing for uh, all Paul's writing for Revolver had been done after that experience. They, they always said Rubber Soul was the kind of the pot album that's what they were doing at that time and then Revolver was more affected by LSD. We could. I think LSD affected them in... Um, it kind of loosened their imagination a bit. They 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 stopped sort of categorizing things so kind of distinctively. They felt like um, you know this category of music didn't mix with this category, and they suddenly started to think, well, well, why not? You know, uh, and and that led to a lot of a lot of sort of musical experiments. You know, what, why can't you do a track that's longer than two and a half minutes? Why can't you? Um, and, and it's extended into Sergeant Pepper. You know, why, why can't you? Um, you know, why can't you have a gatefold sleeve? Why can't you, um, you know, have a 1920s type of tune and, a, and an Indian raga all on the same record? <laughs> they, they stop thinking in such rigid terms, I suppose. Mm. We could uh, spend a, a long period of time just dissecting every song from Revolver, but can I ask you to choose one, and perhaps I could choose one and give us a little insight into the recording and writing process? Uh, you go first. Pick a song yeah, from well, Revolver. They're, they're, I mean, the first song they recorded for the album was Tomorrow Never Knows, and it was the most experimental of, of the tracks on that album. The, when they did Rain, which was on the B-side of uh, Paperback Writer, that, that, that had a bit of reverse guitar on it, and that was kind of an indication of, of uh, you know, what was happening, because that was recorded during the Revolver sessions. And I remember when I heard it, you thought, hmm, that, I mean, that is really kind of different, having, having a tape played backwards at the, at the end of the song. Nobody had really done that before in pop. Um, but with Tomorrow Never Knows, you had a lyric that, that John had taken from uh, a Buddhist manual, it's called the Tibetan Book, Tibetan Book of the Dead, which was a, sort of a preparation for dying. And there was a kind of similarity in, in, in taking LSD when, where the ego is put to sleep, if you like, and you feel sort of absorbed in, 
in, in, into everything. Um, so it's a kind of a dying, and I think Timothy Leary had kind of rewritten this Tibetan book or paraphrased it, and that, that's, that's what, what John saw. And um, so the song was a kind of a song to trip by, if you like, and, uh, and John wanted the voice to sound different. He wanted it to sound like the Dalai Lama standing on top of a mountain, he told George Harrison, and they experimented quite a lot, like how to get the voice and that there was even some consideration of putting John on a rope and kind of swinging him so his voice would come in and out as he passed the microphone. I mean, that's, that's how extreme they, they were thinking. But what they did actually was to feed it through um, a, um, a kind of a speaker unit that you normally use on an organ. And a, and Les- a Leslie speaker, right? That's right, yeah. And it has um, the... The speaker in, inside the box is um, spun around, so it, it, it produces a sort of a swirling sound. And you can imagine that with an organ. You get that swirling organ yeah. sound. But that, what they tried to do was to put the voice through it and, and uh, gives that kind of phasing sound on the voice. But, they, they, you see, John would kind of say, that's the sound I want, and, and expect George Martin to be able to do it, because he'd been around a long time. He'd been recording since 1950, and he'd done everything from sort of Scottish bagpipe music to um, comedy records. He, re- he really had done the whole thing. Such an extraordinary and, collaboration between the Beatles and George Martin. It just can't be overstated how, how important he was for the right, piano yeah. sound. Gosh. And, and, and Paul had, um, had been experimenting with these backward tapes and splicing bits and playing them backwards on, on, on his own tape recorder at home. And um, he gathered a bunch of those together, and that, that was the that became the kind of bed of, of, of the song. So you had experiments with the voice, experiments with, with the sound, experiments with the lyrics. It was a whole experimental track. Mm. And Tomorrow Never Knows, the title was taken for something Ringo said. Ringo used to get his um, language garbled at times, like A Hard Day's Night was, was one of Ringo's sayings. And um, Tomorrow Never Knows was something he said in a press conference and I think, 1964. Um, he said it, and I've seen um, uh, you know, footage of, of this this press conference where he says it, and you see John kind of in the background laughing and obviously digesting this um, this line and then when they did the song in order to take the seriousness the, the kind of edge of the seriousness off it he put this kind of jokey it was called the void for a long time and I mean, also what, a, mark one is that right mark yeah that's one? right yeah yeah what did that mean if anything mark one is that what it is there probably something? meant like edition one or take one or something like that oh, okay i i assume um but they, they, those Mark One and The Void are quite, quite sort of gloomy, serious, right. <laughs> um, impersonal titles. And um, so he put this jokey title to kind of take the edge off it. Mm. Well, let me choose. So one let me choose one from Revolver, and it's just so extraordinary. I even heard it, heard Sir Paul do it just a couple months ago when he played in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Eleanor Rigby, what an ex- just to, yeah. to this day, just utterly extraordinary. Just just to have subject matter that that dark and existential in, in, from the pop combo the fab four I, I i still remember it to this day when i first heard it steve and it blew my mind and it still does yes it was um you don't really i mean you hear it now as part of the beatles repertoire and we you know we've had sort of 50 years of other songs in between by other people but at the time you know a lot of reviewers were saying you know this is gloomy stuff for a pop group and if you think about it it probably was because pop groups were used to singing about you know girls and cars and dating and dancing and 
Um, and here, here's a song that's not only one you can't really dance to, unless you're doing a very slow dance. Um, and, um, you know, it has a string quartet on it and, uh, so, you know, lyrics about, um, you know, a church and about religion and about death and funerals. And uh, it, it, it was... It was a break from the past, but that's um, you know, there's lots of quotes in the book from from Paul talking about how, how they they didn't want to get stuck in a rut. I mean, they knew how to replicate what they'd already done and what had been successful, but they didn't want to do it, and, and they were taking a risk. They 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 knew that well. There was a chance that the teenage audience were not going to like Eleanor Rigby. I mean, why would they? You see these girls screaming and, and loving you know Twist and Shout. Why why would they love also Eleanor Rigby? Mm, yeah, uh, it's uh, was the album completely done by the time they went out on their what turned out to be their final tour. Was it completely finished and in the can, so to speak? Yes, it, it, it was. It was finished. They they did they'd done the last track before they left, but they didn't have a title for the album and they hadn't sequenced it yet. So while they were on the road, they they would sit in their suite and uh, they would be playing a reel to reel version of it and, and kind of deciding on the running order. And also they were deciding on the title and they would sit around with um, you, you know with their road crew was only a couple of people but and um, and sometimes even journalists and they would toss around ideas for the title for the album <laughs> and that was sent to london by a telegram from uh, from tokyo so you know we're going to call it revolver and um during that time klaus volman had already done the the cover illustration so he was doing the cover illustration after only hearing, I think, three or four songs, which they gave him as a sample, and not having, not knowing what the title was going to be. Oh, that, that, that's one thing that kind of surprised me about the record. I mean, it was um, it, it was planned in the sense that they planned to do something different, but it, it wasn't planned thematically, and um, and it was it was kind of done on the run. I mean, they they went into the album with like I think John and Paul probably had. You know, maybe four songs between them at that point. All the rest were written like during the recording, um, not necessarily in the studio, but but during the time of recording, and um, uh, with you know no 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 title in mind, no no cover illustration in mind, um, and it was just kind of all put together like that. And yet, it perfectly captured that period. Maybe maybe it captured that period because it was done in that way. Yeah. Yeah. True. True. And then uh, they head out on this tour, and man, oh man, all the, things were kind of going from bad to worse, and all, there were all sorts of issues, and they feared for their lives in the Philippines, and it, it's just so sur- surprising in a way to read about shows not selling out. Their their yeah. final shows in Detroit, there were plenty of seats available. What was going on through this tour? How strange. Well, I think... I mean, they, they were taking on more and more ambitious arenas. You know, they'd done Shea Stadium the year before. I mean, it was really the kind of the forerunner of the big stadium rock that would take off in the 1970s, but but they were the, the first to be that ambitious. And, um, you know, kids were fickle as they always are, and, you know, they'd had the Beatles for, um, you know, a couple of years, maybe three years or something like that, and it was... Uh, 
I know in one documentary they were interviewing kids and, and they were saying, yeah, well, you know, I'm listening to the Dave Clark five now, or I'm listening to Herman and the Hermits now. <laughs> so that, <laughs> there was that sort of thing going on. Yeah, yeah. And, and may, maybe, see, Revolver hadn't come out by then, so, so that wouldn't have affected it. I think the, the Jesus controversy may have affected it to some degree because it... It, it turned them into rather lovable mop tops. I mean, they became controversial figures, and, and um, you know, there's this idea of the Ku Klux Klan trying to maybe possibly shoot them, and um, and all these bonfires of people burning their records. That may have had some effect. Mm-hmm. And they were they were ready for this touring thing to be to be done. It sounded like as uh, as we read in your book, it was. Uh, what 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 made them make this final decision that we're not going to do this anymore? Was it just one specific show, or they were just sort of tired of uh, not being able to be heard over all the screaming, or what was going on? It, it was to do with not being able to be heard. They they, I mean George in particular felt we're not we're not we can't progress because a we're not like right in front of the audience as we used to be in the cavern and had that that kind of intimate relationship. And, and, and we can actually see how, how the songs are being received uh, and meet the fans afterwards. And, and we can't hear each other. We, you know, we're just kind of guessing um, what the other person's playing. Um, so that, that was a big contributing factor. They, they felt, how could they possibly, you know, individually um, improve? And then the concerts were getting crazy. I mean, I use a, a photo of Candlestick Park in the book, and um, they, they were on a stage in, on, on the baseball field and um and and the stage is uh, has got like wire fencing all the way around so you can just see this kind of wire grill and the beetles behind it and you just think how different that was to the cavern in in liverpool the, the basement club where they you know probably their, their sweat would have bounced up into the audience you know it was that close that intimate that that sweaty and here they are you know in a cage in a on a baseball field in in san francisco with the, with the wind a biting wind kind of blowing over the field yeah. um but i think there was one incident where where paul kind of felt it particularly there was there was a i mean that they had to be taken off the stage uh, in some cases in a, like armored vehicles and they're in the back of the vehicle and they're kind of sliding across the floor and bouncing around and, and people are pounding on the sides of it and they're they get quite worried. I mean, the, the worries in Memphis because that was the closest they went to Birmingham, Alabama, where the um, where the record burning started. And they somebody threw a firecracker in the concert at Memphis, and, and momentarily they thought, well, "That's it, you know, that somebody's pulled a gun, pulled the trigger." Uh, but there's just somebody throwing a firecracker on stage. But I think they they were a bit on edge. Mm-hmm. After their uh, final show, as you mentioned, in. Uh Candlestick Park in San Francisco of August of 66. Uh, they come off the road, and the rest of the year, what happened? Some momentous things continue to happen in this incredible year of 66. Yeah, the, um, yeah after they came off the road, then um, that was their first chance to sort of pursue their own interest in depth, and, and John took on a... Um, took on a film role in How I Won the War, which was um, being filmed in Spain and Germany and directed by Dick Lester, who'd done Help and Hard Day's Night. Um, and he was just kind of see, trying to work out like whether acting was something he could do. I mean, in, in the Beatles films, he'd always acted himself. Could he act 
someone else. Uh, I don't think he was deeply interested in it, but he, but he kind of did it partly as a favour to Dick Lester. Um, but while he was out in Spain, he wrote Strawberry Fields Forever, which is you know one of the best things that mm. came out of it. Um, November, he, he met Yoko. I mean, they didn't get to know each other deeply at that time, but that began something that would have like significant effects for the rest of the Beatles' career. Paul went out to um, well to France, Spain, Italy, and then flew to um, Kenya. Again, uh, you, you know, he, he grew a moustache and was learning how to be uh, um, anonymous. You know, how, how to look around without being spotted as a beetle which led to his idea of doing Sgt. Pepper, like what if we all kind of had moustaches and if we were all in guises, then, then we could do stuff that would be beyond the expectations that people have of what the Beatles would do. You can sort of not be the Beatles if you look differently. And I think he had that idea, or he did have that idea on the, on the plane coming back from, from Kenya. George pursued his interest in India. Um, he... Uh, went to study under, under Ravi Shankar. They went up to Kashmir and uh, stayed on a houseboat and they travelled through India and saw some of the, the great sites of India and attended a festival and, and, and things like that. So that's where his love of India was born. It, they, on, on the way back from Manila when they were doing the tour, they all, all of them stopped over in Delhi for a couple of nights and, and that's where they, they bought some Indian instruments and had a little uh, bit of tuition given to them in their hotel room and that, that was their very first taste of India. Near the tail end of the book, you write about a recording session they did actually at the very beginning of 1967. And even a lot of Beatles fans may not know this piece. It's never been uh, released, and I've never heard it. I don't know if you have, but tell us about Carnival of Light. Yeah, there was, um, there was a plan to do a kind of electronic, um, <clears throat> I think they described it as a rave, an all-night rave, and it was going to have different sort of electronic musics and uh, um, Paul was asked to contribute and while they were doing Sgt. Pepper he got all four of them together and they did um, sort of avant-garde style music where they, they kind of all played independently of each other and there was this cacophony of sound and I think it went on for one or six or seven minutes and, and they got the tape and gave it to the organizers and it was played that night in amongst a lot of other electronic music. Um, but I, but I haven't heard it. Mark Lewison, who, who's uh, sort of chronicling the Beatles' career, did did the first uh, few years in a, in a massive book uh, two or three years ago. He, he he's heard it and he he's described it. It probably isn't very interesting because. Um, yeah, I mean, me and you and a few other people could start knocking on radiators and banging tins and making a lot of noise and say, well, if you don't like it, it's because it's avant-garde. <laughs> it was probably a bit like that. They, they just, um, yeah, it's about as far as you could get from being a Beatle, I suppose. Uh, my last uh, question for you, Steve, what, what was it about this, th this year that, that uh, it's just the, the acceleration in, in their career and the chances they, they took in, in this 12 month or so period in the year of 1966 is, um, I don't know if there's any other parallel <laughs> in pop music history. What, why did it all happen in 1966 for the Beatles? I, I think it was, um, a combination of who they were and, and their individual talents, and, and the, the point that their career had got to, and, and their, they were they were more educated than previous generations of musicians in the sense that you know, John had been to art school and Paul had done English 
an art at what we call A-level, advanced level at school. So I think they were able to look at music in the way that they saw artists and, and, and novelists and, and playwrights and poets developing. And uh, that, you know, Jolie Lewis and Chuck Berry didn't think like that, but they did because they, they'd got all this knowledge. They knew what Picasso was trying to do with his paintings or Van Gogh. They, they, they knew what James Joyce was trying to do with his writing. They had enough information about that to apply it to what they were doing. So I think they wanted to progress as musicians. But, but I think the, uh, another thing was they, they had great um, competitors. You know, they had the Beach Boys and Smokey Robinson and the Miracles and the Kinks and the Animals and the Who and Dylan. And, and all these people were at the top of their game. And it really just raised the bar all the time, you know, month by month. So that was another contributing factor. But, but I think the times they lived in were, were, were really significant. I mean, it's not an accident that Shakespeare wrote during the Elizabethan age of exploration and, uh, you know, the, the huge changes in, in uh, English-British society at that time. Um, and, uh, and I think those... Uh, in the book, I describe it as like, um, you know, when, when tectonic plates rub together, they, they produce an energy... Um, which obviously lead, leads to an earthquake. But um, I think in, the, in culture, I think those sort of tectonic plates rub together when you get different life, competing lifestyles and people are, are trying to work out, you know, what, how should we live now? And, and the 60s was definitely a big time of people trying to work out, you know, what, what is real, what is true, how do we live? And, and, and they were caught up in all that, really. Thanks for listening to Martin Dandyke Undercovers and our interview with Steve Turner about his new book, Beatles 66, The Revolutionary Year. This has been a presentation of the Ann Arbor District Library. Church where a wedding has been 